Listener Production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Everyone relax. This is Tofop with Friends. I'm Charlie Clawson and joining me today is a journalist called Joey Watson who's got a brand new podcast out. It's the second series of Secrets We Keep. It's called Nest of Traders. Uh, Joey is obsessed and uh, has been obsessed his entire life with spy stories and this podcast is about the very true story of a uh, KGB mole working within ASIO who portrayed Australia. It starts back in the 70s, but stretches right up until today. Um, there's a couple episodes out already. Uh, you can find it on the listener app or anywhere you get your podcast. It's a fascinating story. And Joey is a, a really uh, knowledgeable, interesting guy. Young dude. wasn't expecting him to be quite so young, um, but he has such an encyclopedic knowledge of all things uh, Cold War for such a young guy. But uh, this is a great chat. I really enjoyed it. So without further ado, here is Joey Watson. Joey, uh, so great to meet you. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I want to ask oh, you thanks, a question. Thanks, Charlie. As someone who is a self-confessed, like, you know, someone who loves spy stories and spy movies, everything to do with espionage, when it comes to like either a fictional or in the case of your podcast, a real-life spy story, what are the key elements that make them so compelling? Oh, that's a very interesting question, Charlie, and it opens up a lot uh, a, a lot for me. Like you've kind of put me on my soapbox with that one, right? So I feel like, you know, for, for as long as I've been a journalist, actually, no, for, for as long as I've been a human being, I've been obsessed with spy stories. And I've been very lucky to, to make that interest professional um, as a journalist. And I think um, originally, like a lot of people, a lot of people living in the West, um, I was kind of indoctrinated into spy culture through James Bond. It's a very easy gateway. Also, when I was growing up, there was um, uh, like this series called Alex Ryder that Anthony, Anthony Horowitz um, wrote, which is a kind of like kid James Bond. Yeah. And I was obsessed with them. I collected the books. They were, they were unreal. They kind of subtly, um, without me even knowing it, introduced me to geopolitics because they do have like little <laughs> elements of um, uh, international relations sewn throughout them. Um, but, and so I guess when you talk about the core elements of a spy story, the way a lot of people come to spy stories are through those sorts of like high action, um, uh, international espionage, these, these, these like big ideas, right? Um, and, uh, I don't know like if you, if, if you've had that experience as well, that's also reflected in slightly different ways in like the Bourne movies, um, even in some real like even some real spy things like Bridge of Spies even has elements of, of high stakes international espionage, right? But as I've, as I've matured a, a little bit and, uh, and my tastes for spy content have matured with, with me, um, I've sort of steered more towards um, the, the, the spy novels of John le Carré. And John le Carré presents, um, John, John le Carré is a, um, a pen name of a guy named David Cornwell. Him, just like the author of, of the James Bond books, Ian Fleming, um, did work in British intelligence. But he presents like a very different image of what spycraft is. It's kind of like, you know, he, a lot of his earlier books are set during the Cold War against the backdrop of the decline of the British Empire. Um, there was austerity in Britain. Um, people didn't really know what to believe anymore. And he kind of presents this like really sort of seedy, ultra paranoid world um, that is, I would describe more as being strange than as being the, the high action of James Bond. And it was interesting, completely non-deliberately, um, uh, my podcast, as it, as it kind of came along, it became, it took on the characteristics in many ways. And especially um, uh, like in later episodes when things start, to happen, things start to happen to me, it kind of takes on the characteristics of that seedy, paranoid, um, John Le Carre world rather than the James Bond world, but um, so so yeah. So I don't know. It, it's an interesting thing, and I've and I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah, because you've got the like the two phases, like you say, the James Bond, which is probably you know the most famous kind of spy franchise ever. But even down to kind of 
you know, your more modern Jason Bournes or whatever, where they, it's action, it's intrigue, it's like jet setting, it's all that kind of stuff. But then when I listen to like, you know, your podcast or if you read any kind of like article about like, you know, at the Cold War or whatever, there is so much kind of paperwork, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Like so much of it is incredibly boring and meticulous and it's really just a, a game of, of inches in a way. Yeah, that's very that's very true. People kind of call it like like they're just a sort of glorified bureau, bureaucrat in a kind of way. Um, I would say also that like there are James Bond-like spies. Um, I do know some of them. Um, I have spent time with some of them. Like they're the sorts of people that are extremely physically fit. They spend time in conflict zones um, or potential conflict zones. Uh, maybe they're embedded in... in um, uh, embassies undercover, like working for Australia or the US or whatever. Um, maybe they're um, in special forces and they're or in army intelligence or something like that. Maybe they're really smart in the sciences. Um, but like, yeah, certainly in the world that's built in this podcast, and maybe this is the the the, the essence of true spy storytelling is is it's actually um, people who are doing doing things to gather enormous amounts of information um, about threats, about potential threats, sifting through it, um, and then um, trying to create decisions or, or inform government based on what they find. I think, I think the, the, one of the counter-espionage, uh, counter-intelligence officers that I speak to uh, in episode two calls it flies in horse pucky. <laughs> which is not a term that I had come across yes. before. I was wondering about that term. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> no, I don't know where that one comes from. Flies and horse pucky. But I'm assuming pucky is poo in this situation, yeah. right? Uh, but, I, but why one, to get to, that, to get to that term, that idiom, I don't know why one would, would be looking through um, the poof to retrieve the flies out of it. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a strange world. It's a strange world. I don't know if it's espionage specific, but yeah. So your story, uh, you know, it takes place um, in, in the late 60s, early 70s um, with ASIO. Uh, uh, suspicions arising that a KGB have, uh, have turned an Australian spy to be giving information back to Russia. So can you just paint a picture? Because, like, I have a general understanding of the Cold War, you know, the idea of, um, you know, uh, the US and, and Russia, these two superpowers with nuclear weapons, and it was kind of the stalemate, you know, the, the struggle for power, but this also mutually assured destruction if anyone was to go too far. Can you sort of paint a picture of what Australia's role was in that conflict at the time? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, mutually assured destruction, given the, uh, given the acronym MAD as well, which I think makes a lot of sense within the passage of time. Um, Australia's role, it actually became a big inquiry point for, for my investigation because I sort of found out by the end of episode two, like I'd found out that, um, uh, like, as you said, Asia had been penetrated, that, that is the, 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 the sort of um, the identity of who the traitor was or possibly traitors were had been buried. And that is the journey that I go on to try and, to try and find out who they were. But in, in, in doing so, I, I learned this, um, I learned that uh, the KGB had actually sent some of their best spies to Australia um, in part to do with this operation to try and, and, and target ASIO who, who had been set up to try and, you know, weed them out. That they, mm. The ASIO was like a counter-spy agency. So, so here we have, this is where it starts to get, get confusing, but we've got spies <laughs> spying on spies to stop them spying. Um, and ASIO still serves that role today. They're still looking for, um, for well, now again, Russians um, today. But yeah, but I, 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 I sort of started asking around, like, you know, what, why would it be that the KGB was so interested in Australia? And I, and I found out that the answers to that question didn't, didn't lie in, um, in, in Sydney or Melbourne or Canberra, but actually in a tiny town about seven hours north of Adelaide that had been built from nothing in the middle of the desert. Uh, and the name of that town is Woomera. And, uh, and I, I, I went there with my producer, Jake. Jake slightly re reluctantly um, <laughs> dragged along from the ride. Um, but we, no, we ended up having, having a really good, good time. Uh, and what happened in Woomera was um, in, the, so in, the, in, the, in the Second World War over in the UK, 
um, they experienced something that's never been experienced before, which is um, German V2 missiles sort of flying over the horizon and, uh, and, and landing in London and killing heaps of people. Is like, I mean, missiles are now just like part of war now and we, we, can, we, we think about missiles and, and, you know, how devastating they are. But at the time, it's like something out of just un, unimaginable science fiction. And, mm. uh, and the UK, indeed, like the West at the time, didn't really have that sort of capability. So after the Second World War with the emergent threat, as you mentioned, of the Soviet Union who were now testing nuclear weapons of their own and the world became divided, the UK were like, well, we've got to build some of those. And they needed somewhere... To, to develop them and test them. Um, they looked in Canada, but uh, the, there was too much snow, so they, couldn't re- they wouldn't be able to retrieve them. And that's how they ended up sectioning off a third of the state of South Australia, um, some 240,000 square kilometers, Charlie, it, bigger than the UK itself, this area is. <laughs> and it still exists today, although in a slightly smaller size, um, to, to test rockets. And very soon, this area, which they call the Woomera Prohibited Area, is still prohibited today. You still can't leave the Stewart Highway if you're driving north because there's still a whole lot of stuff going on out there. And if you squint, squint to the horizon, you can see the structures of rocket launchers that are still active. Um, but it became... Um, it became not just for missile testing, but their atomic bombs were tested in the nuclear in the Woomera prohibited area. Um, soon, the US got involved because it was such a unimaginably useful patch of turf to, um, you know, set up little spy stations. One was called Narunga, and then eventually, ten hours north, they set up Pine Gap as well. And uh, and so it was really Woomera and what was going on at Woomera that kind of brought Australia into this alliance um, known as Five Eyes. And, uh, you know, we were kind of contributing into Five Eyes, which is this, this whole Western alliance. And, and that meant that we were receiving information from all around the world. And for the KGB, that meant Australia became a kind of backdoor, if you would, to the entire Western alliance. I mean, you've just brought up one of the coolest thing about spy stories, which is the code names, like Five Eyes immediately, <laughs> doesn't it? Like it brings up something that it's kind of like Hydra or something like that. I know it's for the good guys, uh, but it's, yeah, it yeah, still yeah, has a, yeah, it's a great nickname. Yeah, Skef, yeah. it's, it's um, um, amazing, right? And I, and I think about things like Five Eyes and like uh, the truth is so much more wild than, con- than conspiracy theories. Like Five Eyes is still operating today. Like why do they call it Five Eyes? I mean, if you, if you don't, it's like like I couldn't think of a cooler name to want to sort of draw attention to a, a global spy network than than Five Eyes. And indeed, it is named after the five countries, uh, like the five English speaking countries that that are that are part of it. And uh, and then they had an operation called Echelon. Um, which uh, which the, which was operated at Pine Gap, which just involved like hoovering up masses of information that was uh, uh, coming out of the Soviet Union or correspondence between people in the Soviet Union and Soviet embassies in Moscow. Um, you know, fiction is it has nothing on the weird and wild like the weird and wild world of spycraft. Yeah, and especially in that era too, like that was the, you know, you sort of mentioned it um, in the trailer for your series about like there was even experiments with mind control. You know, John Ronson wrote uh, Men Who Stare at Goats, which is, you know, the CIA's attempts to kind of work out if like, you know, uh, telekinesis and, and mind control, these things were uh, could be harnessed you know, in the Cold War, which seems so yeah, bizarre. Yeah, yeah. But, at the, but at the same time, yeah, it's Yeah, the like, MK Ultra rabbit hole is never yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah, object, Operation Paperclip. Like there's so many things yeah. which, are, which are just so, they seem so bizarre, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was only, you know, like the pre-internet, like I, I, I sort of, I do a, another series um, uh, in this feed called The Unexplained Explained, which is where I love to sort of go back and look at, you know, paranormal theories or ideas and stuff because I grew up in a time pre-internet when, you know, you thought that maybe it probably wasn't true that there's a monster in Loch Ness, but at the same time you weren't 100% sure and you couldn't prove it. And so if you just sort of expand <laughs> yeah. that to a global scale, it would make sense that like, okay, well, we don't know what the enemy is doing, but if they're, if they're attempting to control, uh, you know, uh, en- enemy combatants with their minds, maybe we should look into this. Maybe we shouldn't invest <laughs> some time and resources into some mind control, experiment with some LSD, see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. And I actually did an investigation a couple of years ago, which was one of my first 
indulgences in in the world of spycraft and international espionage where i found so that so that mind control program was known as mk ultra um which ran from very early in the cold war in the 50s up until the 70s um and uh i i actually found out that um uh, the CIA through a, f- a front organization called the Human Ecology B- Ecology Fund uh, had been funding um, a specific p- bits of research in Australia. So Australia at the time, um, well, si- actually Sydney University in particular, and this is also something I learned when I was going down this rabbit hole, was a uh, a world leader in uh, hypnosis, and um, the CIA became very 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 interested in 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 that. Um, but anyway, but that, that that doesn't even come into this po- this podcast. But it kind of gets to to what you're saying that it's just like, yeah, the um, yeah, conspiracies have nothing on 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 the truth in this world. <laughs> yeah, it's the I mean, it's kind of the wild. It's just more the sort of the wild west. Like you sort of have this um, maybe naive trust in government organisations that they're working your best interests and that you know they, there's accountability and they have to you know dot the i's and cross the t's. But you know, I did read this other book by this journalist about Charles Manson called Chaos. And it sort of talked about how Charles Manson was involved when the CIA were experimenting with LSD in the early 60s. They're experimenting with yeah, LSD, um, uh, coercive techniques, you know, mind control, all that kind of stuff. All the things that Charles Manson went on to do, you know, with the family, you know, this idea of uh, using psychedelic drugs to kind of sway people and, and influence people. But that was he was known to the CIA. Like there is evidence, there is doc, there's documented evidence of him going into like these. Um, I can't remember what they were called, but they were like drop stations where you know people would volunteer yeah, for these yeah. experiments out of colleges, right across the US. Yeah, that's and, right. And, and from what I understand, that's even when uh, that's where like Timothy Leary got his uh, got yep. his first kicks. Um, uh, what's the, the the bloke that wrote? Um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, he was Not a big sure. user, and he he also discovered it through the CIA, San Francisco the was was the hub of all this. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are wild stories. Um, uh, there there was there was that also that that famous like safe house where they were bringing people in. I think it was also in San Francisco where they were bringing people to um, experiment on. Like like these of sex and LSD, and they were hiring sex workers mm. and watching um, unknowing participants through a double, uh, like a a, gla- a, a a one one way mirror, two way mirror kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, two way mirror. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The normal mirror is one way. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> bunch yeah, of scientists but, uh, staring yeah, what- at themselves, going, "We can't work out what's going on. <laughs> like, is the LSD working? We're just seeing ourselves." <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting though and one thing that sort of becomes a theme in the podcast is that the a lot of that sort of that stuff came out um because of a series of inquiries um that were conducted under the auspices of a, a democratic um Senate, senator named Frank Church. They were called the Church Inquiries. There was also another inquiry done by Rockefeller. Um, this is in the aftermath of like in the 70s in the aftermath of Watergate. And they um, probed so much of the crazy stuff that was going on in the CIA in the first couple of decades of the Cold War and brought a lot of it into the public. And I think in also many ways set a culture of um, – open discourse around CIA and CIA operations that still exists in America today. And I would say mm-hmm. um, one thing that was very, very frustrating is that we definitely do not have that in Australia. And um, in, in certainly for sort of finding, trying to find answers about stuff that happened in Australia during this period, um, you know, like around the question of the pen- penetration of Asia by the KGB and the hunt for the mole, um, it was... Uh, yeah, it was extremely it was extremely difficult. Yeah, well, well, that's something that you you bring up in the second episode is you talk about you know uh, trying to find sort of like court documents that have gone missing or documentation that's gone missing and the advice you got as a young journalist, which is like you know when you're sort of choosing between conspiracy and incompetence, you're always choosing competence. Do you still feel the same way? Well, um, it's a very difficult question in this series because the two seem to really interrelate to each other. Um, by the time we get to episode four, um, I, I, I sort of want to try and work out what was going on inside ASIO during this period um, to try and get a sense of why 
um, a mole could have penetrated ASIO and a, a KGB mole could have, or the KGB could have infiltrated the organization. And, and that leads me to a, 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 a very like specific royal commission that was set up by Gough Whitlam in 1974. Um, Gough Whitlam was famously a bit sus on the intelligence agencies uh, his whole government had. They thought that they were like in bed with the, um, uh, the conservative governments that had ruled Australia, you know, like Menzies and stuff for the first, like for the previous couple of decades. And, and, and ASIO was sort of like ripped apart and the reports of that Royal Commission, and I, and I, I tracked down um, his, uh, the, the, the secretary of the commission, a guy named George Brownbill um, at a nursing home in Canberra, a lot of nursing homes in this podcast. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you can't beat it. Biscuits and tea at a nursing home. There's nothing better. And, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, and George had, you know, to, to paraphrase George, George Brownbill, he found that the situation in, in ASIO, um, actually, no, I won't even paraphrase him. I'll quote him directly. It was a, a real fucking mess. And, right. um, you know, record keeping was not like, like was not functioning. There was victimization of senior staff. Women were being treated really badly. Um, uh, there was a horrendous drinking culture that had gotten out of hand. Um, so people were pissed a lot of the time. And, uh, and you know, he sort of recommended wide-sweeping reforms. And then it, it, it sort of like, <laughs> it sort of like leads, leads into this chicken or egg dilemma where I'm wondering whether whether the incompetence created the mole, as in hmm. created the conditions for the mole to be able to exist, or whether the mole was indeed sabotaging from within the inside, like from within the inside. So you know you got to do you got to do the old um, you know take take heed the good advice and say, you know not assume a conspiracy in every situation, um, and and obviously go for the cock up unless you have evidence otherwise, especially as a journalist. But when I um, but in in the spy, in the spy world. It just like, and and in this story, it became even more difficult. And and there's a phrase that's thrown around in, um, in the spy world called you know that that people say it's the wilderness of mirrors. It goes. Mm. It, it was originally attributed to a very eccentric CIA counterintelligence chief named James Jesus Angleton, who the paranoia of his of, of James Jesus Angleton. His middle name yeah, is Jesus. Yeah, James Jesus Angleton. Yeah, yeah. He actually <laughs> became he actually quite became quite famous to Australian audiences in the late seventies because he he became a mass conspiracy theorist uh, in his retirement, and I think part of that was triggered by the paranoia of like hunting for moles during such mm. tense years of the Cold War. But he he was the one that was sort of ha- had given evidence to or like suggested to it to Ray Martin in the seventies that that. Um, the CIA did a job on Whitlam kind of thing. Um, yeah, but that right. was only just one of the things that he, he was into. But yeah, but he had this phrase, the wilderness of mirrors, where like spies live in this world of deception. I mean, I, I, I can't even explain what wilderness of mirrors means, but I, I kind of get the, like the visual idea of it, right? It's just like everything is mm. bouncing off each other and everything is sort of, you feel like you're getting closer, but things are slightly elusive. And I, I feel like, yeah, that, that, that 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 question, chicken or the egg question of cock up versus conspiracy that seems to thread its way through the podcast and uh, and and send me towards the brink of insanity is only one of the many um, that that uh, has been keeping me up at night for the last three years. Feels very Australian uh, for it to be a cock up. <laughs> like it feels, <laughs> if, if like this is all led back to like a Christmas party or a booze up or something like that, and then someone left documents on a desk or something, it would hardly yeah, be that surprising. Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was. I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I was interested um, uh, in episode one. Um, uh, George, is it George Seville? What's his surname? Sadil, yeah. Yeah, George Sadil. Yeah. S A D I L, short for, uh, or like the anglicized version of Sidilnikov, which was his Russian name. Sidilnikov. That's right. Yeah, Sidil. Um, and he yeah. was sort of talking about when he was uh, under suspicion of being the mole. Um, and, you know, discovering uh, the, like cameras in his home and, and you know, the neighbours cutting down the bushes across the way and stuff, which I thought was also fascinating. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it sort of made me raise the question of like, so if you do find microphones or cameras in your home, what then? Like, uh, do you just take them, do you take them down? Like, do you chuck them in the bin? Do you call the police? Like, what's the next step after you realise you're under surveillance? 
Yeah, well, I don't know. That's a kind of interesting question. And it's interesting within the context of George's story, right? Because he he says that like, you know, he began to to feel like he was under suspicion. And um and and this was in the in the months that were leading up to his arrest. And um yeah, like the, the the that whole experience of having some some strange neighbors moving across the road, <laughs> and then they're chopping down the rose bush, and you're like, oh, it's, it's a beautiful very rose subtle, bush. Though, what, a, <laughs> what a waste of a rose bush, you know? And um, and then you kind of walk into your house after you've you've been out for, for you know sh- shopping with your wife at um at David Jones Canberra Civic, and and then you kind of get the sense that someone might have been in there, and you're looking around for for bugs in the wall or, or microphones in the roof. But then, when George was finally arrested, um, like you know, after after months that he had had, well, at least the way he tells the story now, he had felt, and he and his wife had felt like he was under surveillance. The documents um, that he had been taking from ASIO were laid out on his living room floor. And, and I, like, and then so he claims that those documents were just retirement documents, and there was nothing funny about it. And um, I don't know. Within his re- retelling of events, it kind of does make sense because surely, if you were uh, up to no good and you began to suspect that the AFP were watching you, I don't know. You'd start to be really, really careful, right? There's another detail in that story, though, that didn't ring true for me. And here's me starting to get all cons- – look at me. I've put the tinfoil hat on. I'm getting all conspiratorial. No, Charlie, but- Charlie, go for it because I, I, I honestly – you know, I've become very close with George. Um, okay. But I don't, I don't feel resolved on it. On it. I mean, I know, I know for sure um, because of where the investigation goes. I know for sure that it's definitely very, very, very far from the full story. But I okay. still personally don't have any resolutions on George. So I'm happy to go all conspiratorial. It was yeah. just a minor detail that you included where someone had claimed that he, the documents, um, whether or not they were just his retirement documents or whatever, the documents he'd taken from ASIO, he had smuggled out in the lining of his jacket. Now, yeah. if they were just harmless Retirement documents, why do you need to smuggle them out? Yeah, I know. It's strange. And I, I kind of put that to George. And George says that, um, well, George doesn't say that he's put them, that he smuggled them out in his, um, the lining of his jacket. That's from right. um, some of the court reporting at the time. And so, and the context of this is that I tried to get the transcripts. I think you alluded to earlier. I tried to get the transcripts to be able to do the best possible telling of the trial of George Shadil as I could. But the the mm. the you know we we paid like a researcher at Canberra Courts for their time because um, that's part of the process. But when they got to the doc, when they got the retrieve the folder, it was like it was empty. So the the entire transcript of all the court proceedings has has vanished. Mm. Uh, and doesn't exist, so I'm trying to construct it just from speaking to people involved, and um, you know that that from I spoke to enough people, and it was in enough of the reporting at the time from journalists who were in court. This is in the early '90s um, for me to w- feel comfortable that there was something to do with the lining of his jacket. Now that could mean different right. things, right? Like like mm. people saying or a newspaper report saying, okay, it was in the lining of his jacket. It could mean that it was like a zipped compartment and then slid in, you know, or it could also just mean that it's, he's just sort of folded them under his arm and, 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 you know, and George obviously tends towards the latter. Um, mm. He wasn't, I don't think, so transparently um, just like kind of marching on out with the documents sort of f- like fl- flapping around behind him. But, mm. um, but here, he contends that it, there was a bad culture of... Um, uh, or to him, it wasn't even necessarily bad, but there was a culture of bringing documents home at the time. And I, I have been pointed to by journalists who were sympathetic with George to um, other smaller level, smaller scale scandals where um, you know government staffers and stuff had been caught with confidential documents at home in the nineties. But it seemed that it kind of ended there because people saw the the, well, the implications of it. Even. Today, like, you know, with Donald Trump and Joe Biden both, uh, you know, having uh, like uh, classified documents in their home. So clearly, like, it's, it's, yeah. it, 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 it can't be such an egregious act that like, you know, it's still <laughs> happening today, even in the highest kind of corridors of, of power. But another thing That's I want right. to ask is- you about is um, 
you, you know, you talk about some of the spies that you've spoken to were recruited. So how does recruitment happen? Because, you know, in the movies, it seems much more kind of like exciting and sexy, you know, like you get a tap on the shoulder and suddenly, you know, Emily Blunt or someone is training you how to use a weapon and all this kind of stuff. But I assume <laughs> that they recruit from all different, you know, walks of life. There'd be sort of military personnel, but then there must be other people who have like, you know, for instance, in George's case, he spoke fluent Russian. And so it's like, well, we need you to translate these things. But do you know much about how the recruitment process goes? Yeah, absolutely. During the Cold War, um, Australia, Australian intelligence, because ASIO had been kind of set up in a way, um, in kind of quite intriguing circumstances, actually, by um, by MI5. And um, uh, they borrowed a culture from the British where recruitment into spy agencies was very much like not so much uh, what you know, but who you know, who you know. So there were lots of taps on the shoulder from army mates. Um, people would just kind of be brought in and then verified by other people in the organization to be like, yeah, you know, he's to, to use a, a quote that has now haunted British intelligence, one of us. Um, but the issue with that was, uh, and, it, and it relates directly to mole hunting, is that in the UK, possibly like the most famous spy or, or, or mole traitor in, in history was this bloke named Kim Philby. Um, and he was part of a network of moles known as the Cambridge Five, um, a few of which ended up jumping, um, jumping ship and, and spending like kind of living out their days in the Soviet Union. And they had all been recruited, well, they were called the Cambridge Five. They'd all been recruited at, at Cambridge, had recruited each other in the 30s um, they'd, before they'd even worked in intelligence. But it was sort of this like these like gentlemen's agreements that, you mm. know, well, he's good it was, rather than an official vetting process that was just based around um, the sorts of schools that people had gone to, who their parents were, who their connections were. And um, in Australia, that existed more in a military culture. It was like, oh, nice. You know, this is, ASIO was set up in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, a lot of people had, you know, would, would, would bring people in because they were, uh, they were army, they, they'd known who they were in the army or something like that. And there wasn't really an official, uh, a, a super str- a structured vetting process. And mm. that also leads to further problems down the track because then, and this certainly happened in the UK, that, that um, with the Philby case and the Cambridge Five, is that when you, um, uh, when, when you, if you get information, maybe a Soviet defector sort of kind of tips you off and says, tips the spies off and says, oh, you got a mole, we're, we're, run, we're running people within your organization. Um, and, and, you know, you, then they get, get directed to go and try and find them. Then it's like, well, if everyone's just been recruited because they're old mates and they all know each other, there, there is this real one of us culture. So no, it couldn't yeah, be right. such and such because uh, he's one of us. He's one of us. He mm. served with us. And, uh, and, and I think that that it leads to a very interesting dynamic in the George Shadil trial where George Shadil, just a kind of lowly translator, he wasn't even a spy. He wasn't even in really mm. that interested in intelligence. He wasn't one of us. So he could be kind of put on display, put out to trial um, um, in this very, very public event uh, where Asia tried to, you know, end the story with him um, because, mm. I don't know, he wasn't part of it in, in, in an inner circle. And look, that, that is like slightly conspiratorial. I'm, 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 I'm taking, you know, making long bows here. But that's certainly, um, in, with the many um, spooks that I've speaking to, spoken to around the country and many, many of you feel very strongly that justice never, never, was never served here, um, you know, that's resonant of them. So in saying in the, that, sorry, back sorry, just, uh, sorry, justice was never served in that George is innocent or that the, the evidence was not strong enough against him? Well, whether they think George was innocent or not, it's more just like they think that there's a much bigger story here. And they right. think that their careers were effectively sabotaged from the inside and like no one's had to answer for them for that. It's like this is their life's right. work. And one of their own was um people maybe that they even knew were um were betraying them in a very active So sense. they still hold on and to the uh, so the spy, retired spies he's been speaking to, that anger is still quite palpable. That sense of like a wasted time, wasted resources. 
one one ex spy who didn't make it into the podcast. He didn't end up wanting to be interviewed on the record. Says that he has a recurring dream um, where he's like f- floating through uh, an empty house um, looking for moles, and then he wakes up in sweat, in sweats, and the faces of his former colleagues appear in the rooms as he floats by them. Oh my <laughs> like, goodness! I mean, like it, it, it's quite a full. It's quite a full image, right? And I was yeah. like, please can we put please can we put that on the podcast? But anyway, like a lot of people, you know, they're retired and I respect that they didn't want to be interviewed necessarily. But yes, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of emotion um at, attached to this. Cause yeah, I don't know. And it's kind of complicated, right? Because um a true crime true crime conventionally focuses on murder and it's a very clear and easy crime to understand the victims are clear uh well the victim is clear the per like you know, who the perpetrator whether they've been found or not found it's clear that you know what you're looking for the nature of the crime is very easy to understand but betrayal is um betrayal is more complicated it's more personal mm. it's more yeah, yeah, it's uh, 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 and it, and it tends to linger on people. I've I've found deep into their retirement in, well, in ways that I didn't really understand. Well, because it, it, it it's inherently it's premeditated. You know what I mean? Like there is you, you can like crime can be a crime of passion. It can be impulsive. It can be out of necessity or whatever. But I guess when it comes to espionage, there is a deliberate attempt to deceive. Which on a personal level, like if you are one of that you know group of one of us, you're one of that group. And someone has betrayed you, then it's like it is. It, it is nothing but personal because you have been everything that um, you valued, everything that you built your your creed or your um, you know your code around has been thrown out, and that that demeans the brotherhood or the you know the 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 unity of the group. So it makes sense that it would sort of eat away at you, and also like even on not on a spy level, but just betrayal in any essence. You know, if you've been cheated on by a partner or you know, in a workplace, someone's backstabbed you to get a job. Like people hang on to that for a long, long time. Yeah, no, 100%. And one of the, the trends with um, some of the more famous traitors that have been exposed overseas, because like in America in the, late, in the late 80s and early, well, sorry, in the, in the early 90s and early 2000s, they did, went to unbelievable lengths to pin two very, um, uh, significant moles. Um, one's name was Aldrich Ames, and the other's the other's name was Bob Hansen, um, who both got life sentences. And um, certainly with them and the and the British um, guys that I spoke about earlier, the Cambridge Five is a, an incredible ability to compartmentalize, um, to to be able to completely disassociate from what you're doing, so that you can kind of go to work every day and operate in this environment while also completely undermining everyone around you. Mm. Uh, it's complicated, very complicated. Yeah, it's, it's like undercover work. You know, if you've ever read any um, books by undercover agents and there is this, you know, they either, it seems to they fall into two categories. One, which is there's this constant conflict, this tension between being like the the, the life, the fake life you've, you've built to infiltrate the biker gang or the, you know, the the drug cartel or whatever it is. Or... There is just a complete, it's almost like a sociopathic kind of, I like this is, you know, my own, my only intention is to, is to sow chaos and to, you know, I don't feel any obligation or any guilt about what I'm doing because it, I'm just an agent of uh, destruction for whatever I'm involved in. But I always yeah, think totally. like I could not live with the paranoia of, of living, you know, being undercover, like the idea of being tasked with an assignment which means that I constantly have to um, you know be aware that I could be exposed at any moment that I've built my, you know built a, a history of lies or a persona built on lies I'm just I don't trust myself to, to not slip up you know to forget the name of my fake wife or whatever it is <laughs> yeah totally no I know exactly what you mean and yeah during the Cold War I, I think that un- like understandings of human psychology have advanced a little bit and I think the way that um, uh, intelligence agencies try and recruit. It has become a little bit more complicated, but they use the acronym MICE um, in in how they another acronym. They love it, they don't they? <laughs> they? They love it, and they love animals in this world. 
They love animals in this one. <laughs> I set up I set up a pattern of giving all spy sources animal code names. And I just thought like right. in my phone now, if ASIO hacked my phone, it would just look like I've got a lot of uh, pets with telephones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not suspicious at all. <laughs> not suspicious just at all. Just a menagerie of spies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was like um, mice stood for money. Um, like if people were in financial difficulty, that's certainly true of the American the American malls. Ideology, people were became extremely skeptical about the West or they thought that the Soviet Union provided some sort of solution to, ca- to capitalism's problems. That was true of the Cambridge Five that I was talking about earlier. Um, and um, uh, C is for like compromise. If the KGB could blackmail an Australian spy or a spy in the West and... And, you know, get There's a Russian term for it, isn't it? Is it compromat or something like that? Uh, compromat, that? yeah, com- compromatia, yeah, 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 yeah something yeah, like definitely. that. Yeah, well, it's it's compromatia because yeah, because it's become quite uh, uh, like well known today in relation to um, the whole Trump, Trump. that that steel yeah. dossier about about yeah, Trump's right. alleged. Um, shower habits in moscow predilection <laughs> did for, you ever yeah. speak about that <laughs> yeah. yeah which as far as i which as far as i know was not true um but was certainly considered to be possibly true by a lot of establishment media organizations for a long time that was an interesting mm. period in history um yeah and and e, and e, e is, uh, relatedly is is about is, is ego um and i guess like once you could get someone in on any of that um, and then once you've what got what are them, you most likely to be swayed <laughs> by? Like, do you think what if if someone was going to squeeze you and and make you a, a spy? What do you think would be the trigger for you? Money, influence, <gasps> compromat, uh, <laughs> or ego? Compromat, yeah. Um, uh, I'm gonna make myself I'm gonna make myself sound a legend to save my reputation and say it would have to be ideology. But when push comes to shove, I don't know. I mean, I can imagine feel like if I was feeling like extremely. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. Hang on. For this thought experiment, are you putting me in the? Yeah. Am I working at ASIO during the Cold War, or am I me now? No, no. You're just you. You're just you. Like for whatever reason, you've been identified as someone with the skill set <laughs> that they need to uh, infiltrate. Yeah. They're going to send you somewhere to infiltrate. They're going to send you to China. You're going to go over to China to work uh, for Reuters. You're going to be a journalist. But um, the, would gonna, it be, get what's the motivating the, factor for you? Yeah, I guess it would have to be ideology. I'd have to be severely disaffected with the system that I live in. And I can imagine that happening to people, but I don't know. I think, yeah, the world is such such a mess now and the world is so complicated. It would be It, it would be extremely difficult to imagine taking that to its full extent. I think like... I guess money early, makes it difficult, yeah. doesn't it? Because money's traceable. And if suddenly your circumstances, your financial circumstances, like all of a sudden you're driving a like an Aston Martin, <laughs> you're living in a good part of town, you're like, this journalist is making yeah. a lot of money. So it's hard yeah, to But surely to, there's to hide less that. stressful ways to make a buck though, Charlie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than having to, yeah. Also, you, yeah, you just feel so anxious. I feel like I'm already yeah. pretty anxious. I don't need that. I don't need that stress on my mind as well. <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think I think the blackmail, the compromat, would probably influence me the most. Like the idea of some horrendous. What are they going to get on you, Charlie? <laughs> oh, look, you know, just just to go to my search history, I'm sure there's plenty of terrible stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't right. know. Chinese I just, intelligence I just think stay m- clear of Charlie's search history. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just more um, just the idea of public humiliation or whatever it is. Like everyone has some kind of skeletons in the closet. Like even, you know, you hear about people going to trial and opposing legal counsel, digging up, you know, family history, financials, troubles, anything, you know, that, that can be used against them. I think that would, that, that, that fe- fear is a greater motiv- motivator for me than ideology or money, I think, is like attempting to preserve yeah. whatever sanity I have or whatever privacy <laughs> I have. Yeah. Charlie, I have a feeling we wouldn't make uh, very good moles, the two of us. I don't no. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, be sing- I'd be singing like a, like, a, like a pigeon like, straight away. <laughs> yeah. Well, then if you, if you give yourself up and become a mole and then you spy at your, your home spy agency, so you know, catches you or Australia catches you, then they might try and run you um, against them to, to keep you in place as the mole. And that's when you have the whole concept of double agent. 
come into yeah, play, right. to play. Even I'd be even um, worse at that. Just terrible. <laughs> just don't <laughs> <Yeah>. give up. <laughs> you guys both stress. suck. Just, I give up. <laughs> so stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you go about like, you know, you said you sort of become friends with a lot of these these spies and stuff. Like how does one go about tracking down someone who's professionally like, you know, they they've, they've made a, a life of being sort of invisible? Yeah. Well, the answer to that question is letters. Um, I've, I've, uh, my, my spy obsession and online shopping have single-handedly kept Australia Post uh, up and running over <laughs> the last four years because I have sent, sent so, so many. Um, Handwritten? Uh, uh, at times, yes, definitely. Um, the reason for letter sending is uh, one is personal. Um, you know, as you said, these people have lived in the shadows for a long time. If I manage to get a name and I want them to talk to me um, for my inquiry, I want to give them something that's a bit considered, something that they can, you know, put on the kitchen bench, think about. Um, it is a big thing that they're that you're asking them to do. And because of the complexities of the ASIO, ASIO Act, it could, although this certainly has not happened, I'll make that very clear to any prosecutors that may be listening, not, not, I have not been told any information that could be deemed illegal under the ASIO Act during, over the course of this investigation. But yeah, yeah me either. Um, I'm just going to add you, that disclaimer to me as well. In case <laughs> thanks, just Charlie. We'll just chuck <laughs> we'll red flag there. my search history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. But um, uh, but yeah, but you know, you could be potentially asking us to do something that would be illegal. So you know, you really want to give them time to think about it. But the, the other reason is that. Um, with all of the apparatus that ASIO would have to electronically surveil, um, you know, I'm sure they would have the ability to track mail. But if you write a handwritten letter and then you wrap it up in sticky tape in a way that sort of closes the whole thing together, then mm. it would be very hard to see what's in it um, without showing evidence of tampering. Um, when it gets to the other side, and especially if you've got a spy who would who would know what to look out for with tampering, like if if stuff had been tampered with, um, yeah. So, so letter writing was was generally quite successful. Like a lot of people, and, and so sorry, to, I don't, don't want to get yeah. bogged down on this, but I'm just, I am I think it's fascinating. So, <laughs> when you write the letter, are you enclosing like just your mobile number and email address because you're sort of hoping that this person is going to respond, but you don't want to let that lead go. So how how are you giving yourself the best possible chance for the spy to reach out to you? Yeah, I give them um, a phone number, uh, an encrypted email address, and a... Encrypted, um, of course. A PO box. So it gives them like multiple options for them to choose how they would want to make contact if they would. Look, I've got to be honest, like a lot of spy, a lot of, a lot of spies... Um, just pick up the phone and give me a call and, and start having a chat. Some were yeah. more sensitive um, about it. Like these are retired spies. Some of them were definitely more sensitive in how they wanted to conduct um, our conversations, especially at the beginning. Sometimes it would be a long period of letter exchanging, of letter exchange back and forth. Swamp, who, who you heard from in episode two, was, was one of those. It took quite a lot of time um, to gain his trust before I managed to come, you know, get an invite to come and visit him and, and meet his chickens and his wife and everything. And, and when um, you say chickens, had, are they spies or is that just, or, or are they real chickens? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're real, they're real chickens. Uh, they're, they're actually, uh, and I wish I could talk more about it because, like, because I'm obviously trying not to identify him, but they are, mm. um, they're a type of chicken called Barnavelda. Have you ever see, seen that? No. Um, they're, they're like a Dutch chicken and they are the most beautiful chickens I've ever seen. They're, they're, <laughs> on every individual feather, it's got like a diamond, um, like like these these like unique diamond printings. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, they're, they're stunning birds. And yeah, with all the eccentricities, that was, that was an interesting one. I also met a spy who had an <laughs> um, incredible orchid collection. Um, a former intelligence officer who had an amazing collection of orchids, which actually have a very special place in the world of espionage. I later found out orchids uh, rely on deception to survive, so they seem to be a huh. running theme in the in the spy world. Um, uh, but yes, but anyway, the 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 the. Uh, I forgot, what, I forgot what, your, what your question was, but yeah. The, the, I'm just saying the, like, how, how do you ensure they get in contact with you? That was the- Oh, the yeah, yeah. So give them options, give them options. And of course, a lot of people didn't want to talk. And some mm. people also told me, you know, 
to get fucked. And that's also fine. You know, it's mm. all in the line of work. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, some people told me absolutely no way. Yeah, it's also, it's and also can, fine. And, and of all the, 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 the spies you've spoken to, do you, is there, did you pick up on like a consistency? Is there like a uniform quality or thing, or is it just a, a whole variety of personalities? I think that there is a, um, a kind of eccentricity that is common to mm. many of the spies that I spoke to. And I wonder whether they were recruited into the spy world because they had eccentricity or whether the spy world created the eccentricity that they seem to exhibit in, in you know, now some of them are deep into their retirement. Um, but there's absolutely a, a sense of, um, yeah, a sense of paranoia and a sense of seeing the world slightly differently to ordinary people. And I think that a big part of that is to do with the the the, the um, mole question, the KGB penetration question at the heart of this podcast, because, um, like, yeah, if you lived your career and you feel strongly that one or more of your colleagues sabotage your life's work and that they've never been found, I don't know. Yeah, it has a lot. It has a, a lasting effect. But you know, I think that I, I, I genuinely, yeah, I think that that there definitely was a, a quality of kind of creative paranoia that seems to be right. shared amongst many of the spies that I spoke to in Australia. Um, and even I would say also the spies, some, some, I did speak to a couple of spies in the UK. There seems to be a bit of a cultural connection there. Um, some, right. some kind of, yeah, eccentric paranoia that, that, that seemed to be, um, that seemed to be shared. But in saying that, um, lots of very, very lovely um, blokes, lots of very um, uh, less women because there weren't that many women that, in that period. And the, some of the women that I reached out to were probably too sensible to, to, to get involved in my messy mole hunt. But, um, uh, but yeah, but just like lovely, very smart um, and have a lot of stories to tell. My family, um, we had suspicions. One of my mother's uh, oldest friends, um, she uh, worked for various um, embassies internationally, and would never tell us what she was doing. <laughs> and we, oh yeah, I don't know. Like I know she did some work with the Australian Defence Force. Like I know, so we have strong suspicions that at some point she may have been doing some kind of espionage work. Um, yep. But her personality, she's so vivacious and she stands out so much. Like I'm like, you, I just, I couldn't imagine that like, I, I would imagine being nondescript is like an essential kind of component to being a spy. Whereas she is like, she attracts attention wherever she goes because she's just got that kind of personality. Do you think that someone <laughs> can be like draw attention and, and be charismatic and stuff and be a, an effective spy or is it better just to be someone who can kind of like fly under the radar? Mm, I think it depends on the context in which you're serving and there's probably different skills for different places. If she was um, kind of being sent overseas, maybe she was under diplomatic cover, which was a very common, which is a very common way that spies did and still do um, do spying. It's kind of called like legal. It's like a, a legal form of like semi-legal form of spying where you just send mm. in your diplomatic staff and oh actually one of them let's say in the Australian context one of your diplomats is actually stationed at whatever the the um, Australian embassy or the Australian High Commission in Delhi is actually working for ISIS and they're there to spy on India's atomic program or get information about that or something like that just like a like that's completely like random um, um, mm. but I don't know if so if you're in that um if you're in that environment, then um, yeah, maybe charisma can go a long way. Being able to make friends quickly, being able to bring people into your sphere of influence, um, um, being able to build trust, um, being seen as someone that would be good to be around. Yeah, I can actually probably be um, be an asset, but I don't know. Then if you're um, an illegal spy, so that's someone that is um, dropped in they adopt a fake identity, sometimes live ordinary lives for years before eventually being activated, then certainly you would want to be the, uh, the, the opposite. And many illegals during the Cold War managed to live out their whole lives without ever being found. This is like, like um, 
Um, did you did you see the Americans? That did you ever watch that yes. series from yeah. a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah, that's like that style of spy. In that situation, mm. you know that that they were like extremely ordinary, um, like a, a fa- like American family in the suburbs kind of thing. That's the, the whole sort of setup for the series. But actually, they're they're Soviet spies. Um, it so, seems like yeah, such a it's a complicated like of, of world. All the, uh, this, but it was all the spy assignments, like having to get a regular job and raise two kids. It's like this is hard enough on its own without the espionage element. Like I'm just, I'm literally just trying to like get through my nine to five and make sure my kids have got food on the table. And also, like, I have to find out, uh, you know, what nuclear secrets this country is keeping. <laughs> yeah, there's a re- there's a really um, great like former illegal who was based in New York who took on the name Jack Barsky. Um, he was a KGB agent and he's now kind of gotten really into telling his story. Like he's written a book. Um, I heard him on a podcast a couple of weeks ago being interviewed. Um, at, like I'm sure there's heaps of YouTube videos of him. Um, yeah. And the, the, cause like he's like navigating, well, it, it's even more complicated than what you're saying. Cause he's navigating the world that he's created in America. And Jack Barsky was actually an identity of like, they, they called it, uh, they, they took names off, um, of graves of of dead kids, and mm. that's that's the that's the identities that they would adopt. And so he set up this whole life for right. himself in America. And um, but then he also and and had, he kind of had a he had a wife and a family, and 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 he was kind of very in love with his wife, um, who had visa who had not who who was foreign to America, and she had visa problems. And then so so there was sort of a whole chapter of his peer of his period in America is him navigating that, but under a false identity. But then he also had like a kid and a um uh, a wife back in his home in East Germany, and um and so he was navigating oh the God. complexities complexities of that without. But they never knew that they that he was. Like that. That's what he was. Oh my doing. god! His his cover story was that he was like I'm a he was like a sci- a scientist working at a um some sort of um uh, experimental location in Kazakhstan where they were working on weaponry for the Soviet Union and he couldn't say where he was and um before he left he he would before he left to be dropped back into America he would pre pre write letters um that would then be sent by the KGB incrementally to his family um yeah. Jack Varsky, crazy, crazy stuff. Well, well worth a. That is a, so a, crazy. A YouTube search. It's a really, it's a really great story because, because so many those those illegals operated all around the world, and indeed, I would say that there were there there is evidence that there were illegals operating in Australia, although they were never found. And part of the fact that they were never found is, is could be because ASIO was was being compromised from the inside, so they 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 would have been being actively diverted from them, but. So many of those illegals got away with it, and the and the very few that were caught were sometimes sent back to the Soviet Union in 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 um, like spy swaps, um, Americans spies for so, for Soviet spies, and then they would completely go to ground and disappear. So that's sort of what makes the Jack Barsky thing stand out out so much. It's like so few of those stories that have been well told. Um, yeah, anyway, maybe a future <laughs> guest guest for the podcast, Charlie Jack Fast. I was going to say, out. or maybe for you, <laughs> series three. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where we go. So, series two, secrets we keep, nest of traders. Uh, it's uh, it's all out now. Anywhere you get your podcast on the listener app, but anywhere you listen to your podcast, can you give us a hint? Of, obviously, you don't want to spoil anything about where this goes with the, with the twists and turns of uncovering who this this spy was. Yeah, uh, I I can. Uh, tell you a little bit about where the investigation goes, um, because you know, like any good spy story, it's full of um, uh, twists and turns. Topsy, it's a topsy turvy journey, which is partly why I'm so uh, exhausted. But um, <laughs> but look, by by the, by the time we get to later episodes, I learn about uh, a top secret government report that was commissioned by Paul Keating. Um, he got this guy named Michael Cook, who'd been a diplomat and a um, uh, he'd worked in intelligence briefly. He was like extremely well connected. His daughter had briefly dated Obama, and he he wrote this top secret report in the mid '90s, and um, and it investigated the mole question. And I'm told that they actually it actually identifies four, possibly uh-huh. more than four moles, and that instead of going after them, um, ASIO kind of let them quietly retire 
and 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 really cover it up. The the evidentiary, the evidence that they felt was necessary in court, this is after George Shadil, um, wasn't available, they felt at the time, and so they let them go. And that kind of creates this beautiful but nightmarish scenario where I'm I'm confronted with um traitors being as as one spy puts it dispersed around the commonwealth and uh, yeah. i do eventually um, get a list of names and that leads me to a confrontation in the fine city of melbourne charlie so that that's that's oh, where um, my hometown that's where we go that's <laughs> it. yeah 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 not yeah not unlike where you live that's right <laughs> <laughs> awesome that's great joey thank you so much for coming on the show uh, the podcast is nest of traders you can find it everywhere and uh would love to have you back on when you do series three when you expose oh. the, the, the the mole for who they are <laughs> <laughs> that's right thanks Eve, charlie i really appreciate it Listener.